0: Welcome, dear readers, you're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today at the Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 Territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Innu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 Territory. In this episode, we will be discussing Dawn by Octavia Butler. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I could really go for one of those cabinets that automatically refills with food across the table from
1: me is I'm Toby I'm an outreach librarian based out of Millennium Library and um, yada yada Judas goat I don't know sorry that's all I've got and across the table from me is
2: hi I'm Trevor the uh, branch head of the Louis Rael library and I for one welcome our Owen Colley overlords a good book
0: can carry me away from an ever-engine old and new And you, dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you. Our idea of a good trade is sharing opinions about the books we're reading. So get in touch. You can find our email address and all of our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. But before all of that, we have to make an acknowledgement. This episode will be released on January 6th, but we're recording it on December 21st. Ten days ago, on December 11th, 2022, there was a violent homicide on the first floor of Millennium Library. Tyree Jamal Kayer was just 28 years old when his life was taken. Our condolences go out to his family and friends for this terrible loss. We grieve with you.
1: So I just go into the bio now.
0: Yeah, yeah, we okay. can just jump
1: in. Seems like a an awkward well, transition.
0: Well, I don't know how to transition. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's true. It's true. Um, okay, let's talk about Octavia E. Butler. So Octavia Estelle Butler was born June 22nd, 1947, in Pasadena, California. She was an only child and raised by her mother, who was a maid. She was an extremely shy child who found an outlet at the library reading fantasy. Uh, later in life, she said, I'm a writer, at least partly because I had access to public libraries. And I am also a product of librarians who read stories to groups of avid little kids. At age 10, she begged her mother to buy her a typewriter, which her mother did. It was considered a wildly indulgent gift by her extended family. At 12, she watched a bad science fiction movie called Devil Girl from Mars. Uh, She realized someone got paid to write it and that she could do better. Um, This is when she began writing science fiction. She graduated from high school in 1965, then worked during the day and went to college at night. At college, she entered a short story contest and won, earning her first money as a writer, which was $15. After college, she worked as a telemarketer, potato chip inspector, which I would like to know more about that one, and dishwasher, among others, temporary jobs that were menial that allowed her to wake up at 2 a.m. and write before going to work. Over the next several years she honed her writing, attending workshops, making writer friends, and working on her novels. She met writer Harlan Ellison in a workshop and he became a mentor. She sold her first novel, Patternmaster, in 1975 and by the end of the decade she was writing full-time. She published Kindred, which would become her best-selling novel in 1979. Her rise to prominence began in 1984 when Speech Sounds won the Hugo Award for short story. A year later, her short story Blood Child won the Hugo Award and Locus Award. During the 1990s, she worked on novels that solidified her fame, Parable of the Sour and Parable of the Talents. In 1995, she became the first science fiction author to be awarded a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. She did die in 2006 at the age of 58, but that's not really where her story ends. She was a real visionary, and her books grappled with extremism, racial justice, and the climate crisis, topics which are, of course, extremely relevant today and have contributed to the continued rise in her popularity. Um, In early 2020, Parable of the Sour appeared on the New York Times bestseller list 14 years after her death and 27 years after its publication. In 2021, NASA named the landing site of the Mars rover Perseverance the Octavia E. Butler landing site. Nearly all of her novels are currently being adapted for TV or movies. There is said to be a humongous bidding war on Dawn right now. And just to end on a fun anecdote and show really what a visionary Octavia Butler was, her 1998 novel, Parable of the Talents, features a fictional fascist presidential candidate who runs with the slogan, Make America Great Again. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you're like, oh my God, she's a witch, she did <laughs> not invent this slogan. It was actually used by Reagan in his 1980s campaign and again by Bill Clinton. But that just gives you an idea of how prophetic she was and how keen her mind was for the future. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Your biography made me think of one quote I read about someone else talking about Octavia Butler, and what they say is, Maybe that she wasn't prophetic. She was just a really good observer of her own times, which might be the same thing too. So, so this, yeah, this month we are talking about her novel Dawn, which was uh, written in 86, 87, that area. And it was the first part of a trilogy that later became known as the Exogenesis trilogy. But nowadays you can find it bundled up in an omnibus called Lilith's Brood. What's Dawn all about? Well, I can tell you that story of Lilith Ayapo, who wakes up in a room, a virtually featureless room. She's 26 years old, and she hears voices. They're asking her questions, and she asks questions back. She doesn't get answers. And we, she slowly realizes, along with the reader, that she is one of very few survivors of a nuclear war that happened on Earth 250 years prior, and that she was taken by an alien race called the Owen Collie and put in suspended animation and woken up periodically for observation and testing and then put back to sleep and woken up. So we pick up the story with her on her most recent awakening. And so she we realize, as she realizes, that she's been chosen by the Owen Collie to lead a group of 40 other humans to return to Earth. She's chosen because she's intelligent, tolerant, and rational. Initially, she is repulsed by the appearance of the onkali I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit, but she eventually learns to live among them. And throughout the novel, Lilith's humanity is repeatedly tested, but she always clings to the hope that one day humans will repopulate the earth and be free from the Oankali. That's her dawn in a plant-based cocoon. <laughs> in or a nutshell. nutshell.
0: In a nutshell. Yeah. Or a carnivorous plant that's been modified. <laughs> so what are what were your first impressions with this one?
1: This was a book where I wasn't always a hundred percent sure what was going on, but I was incredibly uncomfortable. I found this overall mood in this book of this like insidiousness, this cringiness, this creepiness that really just Pervaded the entire thing, and I feel like long after I've forgotten everything about that book, that mood, that feeling is gonna is gonna stick with me.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. (laughs) My first gut reaction was I didn't like this book, but that was over a week ago after I just finished it, and I've had a week to sort of live with it and think about it and and maybe unpack my feelings a bit. Why? Why did I respond that sort of knee jerk way? And I think it's not because I didn't like the book. It wasn't the book. It was. I think the overall pessimism I felt towards humanity's chances in the future. You know, we're on board. At least I was on board with Lilith right from the beginning. We see things from her perspective, from her eyes. And then there's a part in the book about halfway through where she's tasked with waking up 40 other humans who will then be like her students. And she has to decide who to awaken and in what order and I was just like, oh, is this the best humanity has? And I I, I just felt very... uh I did feel uncomfortable because, again, like Toby said, you don't really get the full picture ever. You get what the Owen Collie are willing to share with humans. The, the Owen Collier are all about fair trade, but I don't think they trade fair. And we can talk about the ending, I guess. A bit of a, I mean, I guess it is book one of a trilogy, so maybe it doesn't all wrap up, but it, it feels like it... Not a cliffhanger, but kind of an unresolved storyline. So that's my first impressions. Yeah, you
0: definitely can tell that this was the first in a series. Like, it, it's very much a setup novel. I found her world-building, uh, especially the way she developed the Owen Collie and it slowly, bit by bit, gave us more and more about them. I thought they were really deeply thought through. It's always hard, I think to imagine something that's really alien that we can somehow kind of connect to in a way, but is so foreign to us. And I think she really succeeded with the Owen Collie. It's like...
1: They're a very alien alien.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the whole concept of genetic trading as part of their culture, as the way that they develop biologically, like we have biological drives to eat and to procreate. And for the Owen Kali, they have a drive to change to modify themselves constantly. It's like the Owen Collie that we meet in this story are not the same Owen Collie as, I don't know, 500 years before, and it won't be the same Owen Collie as 500 years in the future. Uh, different groups of Owen Collie, if they met, would be very different to each other because they will have each gone off and merged with some other species. It's a very interesting concept. Like conceptually, I thought this book was very impressive. Uh, it was a little hard to wrap my head around. <laughs> And also the discomfort, like, this almost comes across as like a survival horror in a way. Like, there you are, you're going to survive, but at a cost. And the Owen Collie, they're like, they're polite, they're kind, they give you what you need, they're making sure you're not injured or anything, but you can't help but feel that you're cattle. And that they are taking care of you the same way a farmer takes care of the cow so that it will produce the milk. You know, it. they kind of give you a choice, but not really. In the end, they're going to make you do it anyway. And it's just a matter of how forceful they are and how much time they give you, you know? I think at one point Lilith refers to watching the seduction of a human by an alloy, and it's like,
2: I don't know if that's seduction, you <laughs> because the In the end, there was no choice. Maybe for our listeners, we should quickly explain the physiology of an oencoli, for those that may not have read it, because just referenced an an uloi. So the oencoli have three genders. Please, either of you, correct me. I'm sure I'm not going to get this 100% right. They have three genders, male, female, and a third gender, which is neither male nor female, but is required for reproduction?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, unlike humans who you know traditionally go in couples on uh, Kali have triads yeah yeah with a male a female and an Uloi.
2: and you're right yeah and it does when you observe the uh, act as we did in a couple of scenes it doesn't seem super consensual no but
1: the humans are do enjoy it i mean it's it's very uh, i mean like i said it's uncomfortable because mm-hmm. The Onkali have a way of manipulating you in chemical and neurological ways, where you really enjoy what is happening to you. And like, I think there's a scene with Joseph where they're like, you know, your words say no, but your body says yes. Mm. Yeah. And like, right. and then even like Lilith starts to really enjoy it and craves it and wants wants it. It's it's very strange. Yeah.
0: But yeah, but that's that's what I mean, though. It, it that's where it feels so much. Like a rape. It's like, you know, you'll enjoy this. You're, the whole, your body says yes, even though you say no thing is one of those phrases that people use in a sexual assault. The making them feel good thing, it's like, yeah, well, so do people who get hooked on drugs by their partner or, you know, yeah. and, and you constantly see in the book the characters resenting this manipulation, particularly resenting. the men. Mm. which I
1: found interesting.
0: Well, Lilith resented it too for a long time. Yeah, Yeah, but Mm. she was there for years, right? Um, It took a long time to overcome her resistance. And even in the end, she still wanted to escape them. Even though she had that weird bonding attachment with Nakenj that she couldn't escape, Mm. but she still wanted to leave. And if she had the
2: chance, she would leave. Well, and the men felt challenged, um, not only by the Onkali, but many of them felt challenged that they were being led by a human woman, too. Out of the 40, there was with Kurt and I think Peter. They didn't really like, you know, when they found out who's in charge here, which is kind of a very hierarchical kind of thing that the collie said, those are our two characteristics. We're hierarchical and we're intelligent. And when I found out that it was a woman, a black woman, that wasn't accepted and led to violence, too, just amongst the humans. Even before the (laughs) Uloi drugged the humans and... And went in to intermingle with them, which also creeped me out that they were drugged. And then I do feel though that a
0: lot of the resentment of Lilith was because she did seem to be—I mean, she was the first one to awaken them. She was the one who seemed to know what was going on. So there would always be suspicion that she was working against them, especially since most of them didn't believe they were on an alien ship. They were all like, "Yeah, right. This is the Russians, you know. This is because this is from that era." Mm -hmm. of the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union and global nuclear apocalypse. So there was the strong suspicion that it was like mind games by an enemy government. And so at that point, you know, a human collaborator makes sense. And even when you think it's aliens, it's like, well, but you're not quite human anymore because you can do these things we can't. Mm -hmm. That's not a thing a human can do. So there's the distrust of the unknown, the distrust of the alien.
1: But it's not like the humans are great in this book either. And I think... One of the things I liked here was that Butler is very morally ambiguous, you know, mm. like you could be team human or you could be team Uncali. I mean, the Uncali, they're rapey, but like, so are the humans. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could really make a case for either group, you know, who has the moral upper hand here. Like, I don't think either group does. And I mean, there are good things about the Uncali, mm-hmm. you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're trying to save humanity. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, kind of. Well, i mean
1: I mean according to
2: their yeah they're 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 not annihilating they're trying to like evolve, maybe, but yeah. they need to use humans but yeah there there' there's definitely on collie that you feel closer to or trust like like Nakanj. I thought they had a really interesting relationship with Nikanj, how they were almost raised together. And I felt like there was a closeness there that you can get sort of on a one-on-one basis versus country against a country. But if that one person from that country meets one person from the other country, you find commonality. I found that relationship was quite interesting. But talking about how the whole trade aspect, and it, that kind of speaks to the whole like power imbalance between these two groups, the onkali, they kind of prided themselves on studying humans for hundreds of years. They knew us right down to our DNA, our molecules, but they, they didn't really know us. Like they, they thought it's perfectly fine. Well, let's introduce a small child to live with this woman for a little bit and let, just succeed. I, it, Cause I know that would be nice. Oh, let's just take, take him away. That's, that'll be fine. Like without realizing or, you know, we could have given her a banana all this time. Um, but we're not going to. We could have given her writing paper, but we're not going to. Like, there was kind of um, an arbitrary coldness that, yeah, you can understand maybe what makes us tick, but not really what makes us tick, I felt. Well, some of that, though, was
0: intentional. Like, they gave her the gruel at the beginning because they wanted her to see that they could give her better things if she cooperated. All of it was systematically designed to feel them out and then to make them cooperate later. The and Kali seemed to prefer if you voluntarily cooperate. But in the end, they're going to make you do it. And I mean, yeah, they're saving humanity, but it's mainly because they want the genetic diversity.
1: But do they need, I mean, I guess this is a question that takes us out of the book, but do they need humans? I mean, it seems to me they could go find another life form to to incorporate their DNA with. Like, they don't need humans. Humans need the oncology more than the Kali need humans.
0: So the argument on the human side is... You're not saving us because our kids won't be human. Humanity dies with the next generation. <laughs>
1: but what's better, to go extinct or to be part collie?
0: Well, and that's the question. A lot of yeah. the humans seem to resent the idea that they would no longer be human or that their kids would no longer be human that they were effectively being wiped out. This is uh, kind of a parallel for colonization in general and when there is wiping out of cultures, uh, which is something that we're more sensitive to these days, but has long been a thing that humans have done. You know, we go in, colonize a place.
1: Say that, like, we're saving you. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And there's always been that savior narrative uh, for colonization, that, you know, uh, educating the savages, stuff like that. And that's the Owen Collie. It's like, oh, you say you don't want that. We know what you need. We know what you need better than you do. We're going to save you. We're going to do this for you. They're just coming in and enforcing their will. And in the end, it is because they want the genetic diversity. That's what they really care about in the end. The rescuing of dying civilizations, which seems to be their modus operandi, they look at a place that can't really resist anymore because they've almost wiped themselves out or they've almost died out on their own. And if they find enough interesting genetics there, then they're like, yeah, we'll help you out because we're going to consume something in you and make something different. The opinion of the selected alien species is not really relevant to them. They never gave them a choice.
2: Well, I feel like if the Owen Collie really were genuine in being equal partners with the humans, why would they have wiped out the entire, all the buildings and artifacts on earth too? They just raised them to the ground too, along with everything else. So there, there wasn't anything to maybe to go back to. So when you start hearing things like that, you're like, oh, how altruistic is it? And, you know, it's, yeah. you know, I didn't, um,
0: I didn't feel like it was altruistic at all.
2: And then from the other side though, I mean, humanity has already kind of did it to themselves. Like, if the Owen Collie didn't come by, humanity would have been gone anyway. Yeah. So then you think, okay, like, like you're saying, Toby, is, is it a compromise to carry on in a modified form? Perhaps. I mean, it's like those, uh, you know, those grizzly bears that are, uh, finding those polar bears. Have you heard about those? <laughs> like they're making polar yeah. grizzlies. Cause <laughs> the polar bears had to leave their habitat and yeah. end up in the grizzlies too. And the grizzlies too have been forced into like Northern Manitoba and stuff from where they usually hang out. It's different, but the same.
0: that's where again i think it kind of has parallels to like survival horror where you know the the person who survives in one of those they're not the same they're always changed afterwards that's sometimes a question in that genre is like was it worth surviving should i have died and that's i feel like a question that she raises with the humans in this one is like should we have been wiped out was there any point in rescuing us if it is a rescue you know And I think you had mentioned before that she keeps things vague. There's no clear moral choice in this. It's a deep and perplexing question that she doesn't give you an easy answer for, never gives you an easy answer for it. Everyone is feeling these uncertainties, even the Oankali, like Nikan expresses to Lilith a couple of times, some uncertainty And uh, near the beginning, like Lilith is essentially asking for a way out and Jediah says, you can touch me now and I will poison you Mm -hmm. and gives her the choice to commit suicide right there on the spot, even though that's not something Jediah says that he wants, but he gives her the option. So there's that tension always. What do I do? How do I figure out what to do in this situation? Like Lilith doesn't want to betray her species. She doesn't want to be the Judas goat, as you've said, that lures in everyone else and, and leads to their downfall. But at the same time, she does want a chance. Like she does want to have a chance to escape and maybe they can make it as humanity after all.
2: It's like she's presented with no good options. So she has to choose among the bad options, which one is like the least bad. And it's a very interesting kind of position to be put in. And, you know, even just see how she navigates that almost unwinnable situation. What I really liked about this book that is different from most of the other humanity
0: alien encounters that I've uh, read before is she really focused a lot on the disgust or the discomfort that humans would feel with a species that's so very different. Like I'm thinking of, you know, books by like Becky Chambers or uh, like other authors where there's a, a wide variety of alien species. And For the most part, everyone's kind of comfortable with each other. They mention discomfort. Well, uh, there's
1: like giant birds and stuff. It's not like a tentacled monster.
0: True. But there there are like some of the creatures in uh, Becky Chambers stories were also kind of weird and slug-like. But that's not dwelt on. Whereas in Dawn, it's constantly mentioned, constantly a part of the interaction. And it really made me think like if a weird... Spider like alien was there with me, and they were trying to be friendly and everything. Like, how comfortable could I be? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it gets uh, underplayed in a lot of books, but uh, I thought she did a really good job of that. I, think... I can't
1: wait to see a, a TV or movie version of an yeah, it'll
0: be Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that the very look of them is so key to the that discomfort that you feel throughout the book, because they're they are horrifying, you know they're so different from humans, and the tentacles are such a part of their function, yeah yeah,
0: yeah, the whole idea of you know, you're standing there, and all of a sudden one of the tentacles has your wrist and you can't let go, or the they loop it around your neck, <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, now I'm just being corralled and controlled and uh,
1: I had a hard time picturing the tentacles, though, because at the beginning it's described as kind of looking like hair. Mm. So I pictured something very thin, but then if it's, it's like wrapping around a wrist or a neck. They must be thicker. But again, I think her descriptions are purposefully vague, so mm. we kind of can make up in our own mind what they, they look like.
0: Yeah. My interpretation of that was that they had like limbs that more or less looked like arms and legs. Uh, and then the extra two that the ulo- uloi had. But also across the surface of their skin were tentacles, which kind of looked like hair, but hmm. also they moved like hair doesn't. <laughs> and they could like point at things. That was what was in my head, but I, I don't know how you would translate it exactly into a movie or TV show.
2: Yeah. And sometimes I thought too, like when the tentacles would wrap around something, maybe it was like a group of them would kind of come together and make a bigger, almost like a, you know how like a, um twine you can, you can turn into like a, make a rope and maybe that, Got spun and then spun. Mm. And I got, but you're, yeah, it was it was a hard concept because you think hair thin, and then but they're using it almost like an elephant's trunk. So I'm thinking like, well, it's like a sea cucumber kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, Can they you say see one time their yeah their, their hand was like a little like. Wouldn't they use a starfish, saying that they had kind of like these weird little fingers? That's
1: the Uloy Oh, those are the uh, sensory arms that kind organ, of come out. Yeah, yeah those yeah. little guys
2: down there. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. Also, the the ship that they were on, mm. like the way that everything was organic, like literally everything. The ship itself was alive.
1: We have to take their word for it, though, right? Yeah. That's another yeah. thing. Yeah.
0: And, and that is true. Like, this could be one of those situations where they did manipulate a lot more than we know they did. Mm-hmm.
2: And it's really, really hard to tell. Or, like, like in the next book, like, a wall comes down and it actually was the Russians all, all along. <laughs> like, it was just like, you know, they really were on a giant secret army base. Like when uh, when Steve Rogers wakes up in Captain America, right? And they try to make it still look like 1940s and something's off and then, you know, the wall falls down and Nick Fury walks in and says, welcome to 1995 uh, or whatever. And or I don't know if that's exactly what happens. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, but
0: I watched a start of a series on Netflix and I forget what it's called now, but it was like taking place on a starship that had left earth because uh, they were worried it would be destroyed. And it was so it was still kind of 1960s culture, but they'd been flying away from the earth for like 20, 30 years. And then at some point they reveal that no, it's on earth. Their systems are being fed a lot of false data and it's the modern day. And it's like a, a social experiment that's mm-hmm. being conducted on them to see what would happen to humanity if they were launched into space and what would happen. And then of course things go awry on the ship, but that that would be one of those where if they discover it is like, you mean the last 30 years have
2: all been a lie? Yeah. And to be clear, that does not happen mm. in Dawn. I just was <laughs> saying <laughs> no. like a what-if kind of situation. I
1: mean, there's two more books. Well, exactly. Yeah. And I haven't
2: read them, so... Yeah. I'm kind of inclined
0: to believe the Olin Collies version of things, like in general.
2: It does seem that they do hold back a lot. Do you think like they they lie by omission more than commission? Yeah. They don't tell you everything, but the stuff they tell you is... I think the observation Lilith made
0: towards the end was that the Owen Oankali themselves, when they experienced things, they like connected and directly shared their experiences without a verbal language. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't used to lying because they were used to sharing everything they experienced with everyone else. And so when they were dealing with humans, they didn't really know how to lie. They just shut Mm -hmm. up when they didn't want
2: them to know something and they could stay quiet. as long as they wanted. And that's like like the sexual experiences, like the humans, that was the first time they really knew how their partner was actually feeling, like sharing that back and forth and how different that was. Yeah, and also that it was different
0: from what they'd ever experienced before in that type of situation. Mm-hmm. There's so much to chew on in this mm-hmm. book, like so many ideas.
1: I'm really curious about that baby that Lilith is going to have.
0: Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, by the way, you're pregnant. <laughs> what? Yeah. You said you wouldn't do this. I said I'd do it when you're ready, and you're ready. I'm not ready. Yes, I know you better than you know yourself. <laughs> yeah. You want this, baby.
2: Uh, talk about paternalistic. Literally. Well, is is a small, perhaps teaser slash spoiler for the next book. I believe it follows the child, oh. but without saying anything else. Hmm. That kind of that's kind of the focus of the next one. So,
1: and they just it says somewhere where the. Child will be born human but then will develop onkali characteristics later on. Is that did I just make that up? Mm -hmm. No, no,
0: that's what what Nikanj said. That uh, at first the child would look human, look like the human genetics, yeah, until the change happened, right?
2: (laughs) Right, but what I'm wondering (laughs) is like is the change going to be like when an uh Uloi gets its sensory arms kind of thing because that was a change too, right? Where yeah, Mm because because Nikanj. I mean, didn't look like human, but didn't have the four arms. Yeah. (laughs) When, 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 when we first encounter them, it. I found that a little jarring too, how they would often refer to the uloi as it, which isn't sort of like a a pronoun that we would use for somebody that doesn't identify as male or female. We would say them. But again, you know, how, what can you, I mean, it was written in, uh, you know, the mid eighties. So, but it was kind of just little things like that, that. Well, it was
0: interesting too, that even though it was written in the mid eighties, there were, were those, like those humans that, Insisted on referring to them by a gender that was incorrect. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, uh, what was his name? Titus? The first human that Lilith met that then tried to rape her. Yeah, Paul Titus. Oh, right, yes. Um, He kept referring to the Uloi as he.
1: Which is so uh, weird because... Paul Titus lived among them for way longer than any of the other humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. still
0: had this thing where they they wouldn't go with their actual gender and just how Paul Titus perceived them. So it was interesting to see that long before that kind of became more mainstream or more mm-hmm. in the public consciousness.
2: Yeah, it is remarkable that these ideas were written in the mid 80s. And here we are. 40 years later, and so many things we're just talking about right now. Colonization, uh, gender. Consent. And, yeah, uh, you know, and uh, consent. Exactly. Like, all these things. So maybe she was a prophet after all.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot and i i mean i've read one other book by her and it's yeah she she really was a visionary yeah yeah and i mean unfortunately she she died very young but she could still be alive and seeing all the things mm-hmm. that she predicted It'd
0: be really interesting to see what she would write now oh
1: absolutely i don't know what we could
0: look forward to yeah. <laughs> thinking about over the next decades sci-fi is one of those genres where the strength of the idea can really carry it the ideas in this one are so strong, they carry it. But also, she writes well. Like, the the prose is good. She gets across a lot of complicated emotion. I don't know how I feel about the characters in a lot of ways. Like, all the people who are awakened, there was... I guess this is one of those things. It's it's really hard to imagine how people would respond in a situation like that because it is so foreign and alien to literally be captured by aliens and have to deal with them. And the stresses of that combined with chemical manipulation and physical manipulation, like where you can be and what you can eat and stuff like that. So I guess it's really hard to know how humans would actually react in that situation.
1: I mean, her view of humanity is very grim, but I think also realistic. Like, I could see it going down exactly like this. Yeah. You know, with people being angry and untrusting and not willing to just, like, work together to solve problems and to just do what you need to do to get back to Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Like, people suck. And I think Octavia E. Butler, really she really captures that.
2: Like, there was one... Almost throwaway line went during one of the awakenings where one of the men woken up and the first thing he did was like attempt a at rape. And they were all like, Oh, wow. Well, we'll just sort of, you know, whatever they do in the first 48 hours. And then, and then the throwaway lines a few weeks later, they were a couple, you know, and I was like, yeah. uh, What? Like, I mean, is, is that we just get used to? It? Okay. This is the new normal or like, did anyone consult with the woman? Is this, is this, is she like, I just thought that line was, and it was just such a casual, casually written, like, onto the next thing. You know, this is what we're dealing yeah. with now. And I was just like, oh.
1: My also, God. as an aside, all that heteronormative-ness mm. yes. in, in the pairing up. Like, you know, we talked about how this was very um, progressive and, you know, the third gender and stuff. But then when the humans awoke, they were all heterosexual, mm-hmm. conveniently.
2: Yeah, and and, with, and oh. Lilith was saying, well, I'm going to wake the women first so there won't be any sexual attention. I'm like, you don't know, so, <laughs> you don't know what those women are <laughs> thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, people suck. And this is, yeah, yeah, I feel like this is exactly how it would go down.
0: But I also think, like, in terms of... When characters are attracted to each other, how much of it was manipulation, right? Like Joseph was selected for Lilith she by She didn't know Nikanj. that, though. No, she didn't. Yeah. But that's what Nikanj did, though. Mm -hmm. And how much chemical manipulation was in there, too, to make him just a little friendlier, you know, a little nicer, uh, just be a little more drawn to him. And then you have that whole situation where people are crammed together in a difficult situation where attraction and such may operate differently than when you're in a more comfortable, more stable, safer situation. So it's really hard to say. Like, yeah, that couple paired up after the one tried to sexually assault the other. But also, how much choice were they given? And if there were any characters who were homosexual, I mean, we know that they can manipulate a lot of things. They can manipulate your the way your memory works. They can take out cancer. What else can they do? Can they alter your personality? Can they alter your sexual preferences?
1: Can they inseminate someone without, you know,
0: Yeah. Mm. the
1: proper, the male and female parts? Yeah.
0: Exactly. And in this type of situation with an alien species wanting to repopulate the earth... You better believe they're making sure everyone is as hetero as possible because they want as much mating as possible. And also fertility. Anyone have fertility problems? Well, the Owen and can fix that. Your farm animals, Mm -hmm. your breeding stock.
1: But they can just impregnate people, too. Like, they don't need couples to form and consensually mate, you know.
0: But they want them to. Like, that's the thing. They, They seem to have this drive, this perverse... Ideas about what they have to do that they, at least as they express it, they can't not do. It's as, as important as breathing to them. They have to join genetically, to trade genetically with another species. And so they are compelled to do this and do it in a certain way. Like they said, so, because multiple times Lila says, why don't you just, and they say, we can't or we must. And again, we don't know their truest motives necessarily because we know they can just shut
2: up and not talk. And they're very good at not talking. Yeah, it seems to me like there's almost a distinction between what they can do and what they prefer to do. Like, I mean, if, if the scientist, Owen sure, they can impregnate somebody, like, you know, in a lab situation, but the preferred way is to... Send an uloy in there, you know, with some soft music, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and, the, and here come the tentacles. Tentacle. yeah, you know, and uh, <laughs> that seems to be like it, you know. And there was one point where they said, "Oh, yeah, I didn't make you go together. I just introduced you, and mm-hmm. and you, you know, you you did the rest." So it's like mm, I don't know if that's true, but it made it sound like they were all willing participants. But the whole idea about like you know forced coupling felt even more stark after last month's book, The Ray Kess, which was all mm-hmm. about seduction and thoughts and angst. And there, you know, there is, you know, a real kind of feminist spirit in that book. And so to go from that, my brain was still thinking about that, to just like, yeah, no, pair them up, you know, and the and the whole like taking any type of free will or choice out of it, again, I thought was a very interesting contrast from our last read. For those yeah. of you who haven't listened, uh, please check out the episode on the right cast, where you find podcasts.
0: No tentacles involved.
2: No. Honey.
1: But you do say butt stuff. They're, yes.
2: <laughs> yes.
0: But it's consensual. <laughs> yes.
1: It's, it's very, consensual. very so much so. And,
2: and Toby says a, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a couple of words. A couple there. of words a that, you know, that maybe, you know, word. maybe if grandma's listening, you might want to put her, her earmuffs on or turn her hearing aids down. Grandma knows. Oh boy, does she ever?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I gotta read more in this series after this book. Other times we start a series and it's not, you don't necessarily feel like you have to read more. I kind of feel like this one really needs more. Not me.
2: I'm one and done. You're one and done. And, uh, though, like, you know, wait,
0: wait, m- completest, Trevor. I was gonna say last
2: <laughs> month. I know, but just like you know, the Verve predicted in 1997. I'm a million different people from one day to the next. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I feel like. I mean, I'm not totally closing the door on the rest of the series. I'm definitely not closing the door on Octavia Butler. I definitely want to read Kindred, and I think it's the Parable of the. Is it the sower? There's two. Talent there's parable and, of the talent. Yeah. I was reading about those books. Those ones, I feel like. Okay, no, I, I, I'm gonna read those at some point for sure. Uh but I don't know if I need to go back to the world of the own collie. That's just me. That's just me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm not going to continue the series, um, but I would recommend Kindred. Kindred's the other book I've read by her. And it's it's a lot lighter on the science fiction. It's more historical fiction. It's about a woman who seemingly randomly transports in time from the present, which for her is 1970s America, to the antebellum South. And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason for why she keeps getting transported in time and she can't really control it. And it's it's excellent. Hmm. I, I would highly recommend that book.
2: When I, when I heard that description, it was really giving me Colson Whitehead vibes.
1: Oh yeah, and, yeah and, for you sure. Know,
2: you know, you know, my longtime listeners will know my feelings on Colson Whitehead.
1: Yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, yeah, a lot of um, slavery stuff in that book. Mm. So you know, trigger warning for mm. all things related to that. But yeah. excellent book.
0: I feel like she's on my radar now. Like Octavia Butler is one of those names I've always been curious about and just never read. And now that I've read one, I want to read more. And I do feel like I I want to read the next one in the series because it's just like there's so many ways she could go with it. Well, I feel
1: keep us updated about it then. yeah,
0: I feel like the creepy survival horror thing is going to continue on, (laughs) but I'm curious what happens. I'm really curious what happens. Do we have any uh, final thoughts or comments that you guys would like to make? Overall, thumbs up, thumbs down, enjoyed. Too creeped out?
1: Three and a half tentacles
2: out of five. (laughs) Of how many? Out of five. Okay, we good half. to know. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. if three and a half out of 4,000. <laughs> but as well. But uh, yeah, I don't know if I, like, I mean, again, recommending is always, always tough. I guess she's definitely an author that needs to continually be read. And she has some very interesting, intriguing ideas. And so I would definitely think if somebody isn't too Afrofuturism involving an apocalypse and alien tentacles, then for sure, <laughs> I would say that's one fits the bill. So normally at this point we recommend a book to read, but
0: this is the first episode to be released for 2023. Happy New Year. And so our tradition is to talk about our reading resolutions from this past year and for this coming year. Who would like to dive in first?
1: I can go. Okay. So last year, my, my resolution was to read Don Quixote, um, which I did, and it sucked. (laughs) Um, (laughs) the, the book itself didn't suck, but it's, it's like a good, almost a thousand pages. So I, kind of regretted making that resolution. And the only reason I completed it was because I said it out loud here on the podcast. <laughs> but I did like I bought my own copy of it because I wanted a specific translation. And I committed to reading 10 pages a day. And it still took several months. But I did it. It's it was fine. It it could have used an editor. <laughs> it's very repetitive. And Coyote Qu- and Panza are such idiots um, <laughs> that you I just kind of Like you just want to reach in and like slap them, but I did it. I can say I did it. It's done. I never have to read it again.
0: Yeah, I remember it being pretty repetitive. But the, uh, I mean, the stupidity of the characters, the absurdism is. I think, a big part of the point. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, and I also wanted to mention, I discovered too late. There's a podcast I like called Overdue. Um, it's about books. And they did a mini-series on Don Quixote called Jagged Little Mill. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, I discovered it too late, but I think I would have enjoyed it more if I had read it along with them.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like my resolution was a bit of a cheat, because last year it was to finally read a Carol Shields novel, which was my resolution from the year before. So unlike Toby, saying out loud doesn't necessarily compel me to do it. But this past year on the podcast, we read Unless. So does that count as filling my resolution, since I was contractually obligated to read it? <laughs> um, I'm going to say yes. Uh, so that's a win. And I also had mentioned I was looking forward to two books. One was Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John uh, Mandel, which was fantastic. I, it one really, of my favorites. Of yeah, year. I mean, I loved Station Eleven, but I think this even more. Just uh, so that yay. And then in uh, in some some very kind of mysterious way, I wrote down the new Tom Perota. Never read it. Not even sure what the title is. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I really dropped the ball on that one. And at this point now, I feel like the feelings passed. So whatever, mm-hmm. what kind of intrigued me a year ago. Sorry, Tom. Not going to happen.
0: So that's two out of three. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Thank you, Dad. Two out of three ain't bad, according to someone or other. (laughs) (laughs) My resolution this past year was just to read for fun, which you'd think would be kind of like not a thing you'd have to make a resolution about. But I had found over the last bunch of years that I have not been reading as much. And uh, I've mainly been reading the books for the podcast and very few other books aside from that. So it was actually important for me to try to read some more books. (laughs) And I succeeded. A few of the books that I enjoyed this year, A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear by Matthew Hong, which is a nonfiction work about a small town in, I think it was New Hampshire, where a bunch of libertarians online had decided they were gonna like take over a town by moving there collectively and like getting elected to local government and then like cutting taxes as much as humanly possible. And they picked a small town that already had really low taxes and services uh, with people who were not inclined to be friendly to government, so they thought it would be really easy, and how this intersected with the fact that the state was also a very low tax and like didn't fund things like animal conservation very well, and how the intersection of a bunch of libertarians and uh, a bear population that was out of control... <laughs> Um, came together at a certain point in time. It is a fascinating read. I also read uh, Network Effect by Martha Wells going back into the Murderbot universe uh, which and it was great. Uh, another Becky Chambers one that I hadn't read before, A Record of a Space Born Few. Becky Chambers remains, I think, my favorite author that I've been introduced to through the podcast. Her universe building is exceptional and uh, I, I love reading her books. And also... I've mentioned before that uh, one of my favorite genres of books for just chilling out are cozy mysteries. So I found a series called The Lighthouse Library Mysteries by Eva Gates, where murders take place in libraries, specifically a library in a lighthouse, which is not a thing that can happen really. And I was reading the second book in this series about the time that we heard about a real murder in our library. So I've had to put that series aside for the present just because I read for escape and it's a little too close to home. Sometimes life does that where something you enjoy it just intersects with real life in a way that takes away some of that enjoyment. So that's where I am with that now. I do expect to get back to reading Cozy Mysteries again and probably the series again because it has a library in a lighthouse and it has a cat that lives in the library and it's uh, it's a nice little series. Just not for right at the moment. Now we should talk about our resolutions for the coming year.
1: I had trouble coming up with a resolution for this year. Um, my initial thought was that I was going to try as much as possible to avoid books by white dudes, mm. specifically white heterosexual cis dudes. But then I thought about it, and I have a lot of books by white dudes on my TBR, and I'm reading a book by a white dude right now, and what if Amor Tolls you know gets in touch and is like, "Toby, <laughs> I need you to read the advanced copy of my new book. You're right. the only one I trust to do it." I mean, I can't say no, no you to, Amor how to get hold of you now. Yeah, too. exactly, yeah. exactly. Direct line. <laughs> So that is not my resolution. Um my resolution is a bit of a cheat. I have been working on reading all of Ann Patchett's books. She's one of my favorite writers and I've slowly been working my way through her back catalog. So my resolution this year is to finish all of her books and it's a cheat because I only have one book left. Um and it's called Taft and I think I haven't read it yet cuz that's like a pretty boring title but my resolution is to finally become an Anne Patchett completist this year by reading that book
0: is it about president Taft?
1: I have no idea I Mm. hope not
0: (laughs) (laughs) that would be interesting
1: yeah I mean Ann Patchett pretty consistently writes like a book every year or two so she might come out with a new book this year that I can also read in addition to Taft but Hmm. that is my resolution
2: you know, one author who's kind of intrigued me over the years and I've just never bothered reading is, um, Malcolm Gladwell. Hmm. Uh, I know, uh, you know, people are saying he is a interesting writer. He uh, thought provoking. And you know what? I've never read a single thing by him. So I have to say, you know what? Enough's enough. I'm going to read a Malcolm Gladwell book. And also they don't seem to be terribly long. I don't know exactly if there's any out there in particular I should start with. I don't think it really matters. So there it is. that's my resolution. However, I am also interested uh, and you guys may uh, not know this that our old pal, Matt Ruff, has a book coming out in February, mm. a sequel to Lovecraft Country called Ooh. "The Destroyer of Worlds." And we go back and uh, visit all of our faves, Atticus, Montrose, even, uh, you know, that guy <laughs> Caleb. He returns, even though he was stripped... Oh, the from bad his, guy? The bad guy. Oh. He stripped from his powers at the end of the last one. He returns. Hmm. Uh, Letitia and Ruby, you know it. Everyone are back for some more scary slash weird hijinks. I'm glad you mentioned that. I will be interested in that, too. Exactly. So, I mean... And now I don't really even care if there's alien sex in it, because I've had <laughs> my fill. Yeah, I noticed nobody resolving to read more... I'm
1: going to read more Ice Planet Barbarians. Oh,
0: yeah.
2: You're two in.
1: I'm two in, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I forgot to mention that in my uh, books for fun this year because that was fun. So for this coming year, I'd like to get back to something else I used to read a lot of, which was nonfiction, particularly science and technology. When I was younger, I used to read mostly nonfiction, and a lot of it was tech or science-related books on neuroscience, computers, artificial intelligence, animals, biology, Uh, I've always found them fascinating, but I haven't really been reading them much over the last several years. I kind of miss them, and so I'd like to remind myself and find some interesting science and technology nonfiction this year. I think that gets overlooked sometimes as a pleasure read, but uh, it's fun to learn interesting new things about the world. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein in our panelists
2: use words to talk about other words that we really like. Mine is more of a, a nerd phrase than a nerd word this month. And it, it came out of thinking about the novel and how Lilith was tasked with opening a bunch of different doors, so to speak, and in what order and who she should awaken first. And so again, it, it came to back to me to think about something referred to as the Monty Hall problem. Hmm. Have a, uh, Dennis, you're nodding your head in uh, knowledge. So what this is, Monty Hall was a famous game show host, former Winnipegger as well, for those, They may not know that. And he had a show called Let's Make a Deal. And one of the hallmarks of this game would be to have three doors. And behind one of the doors would be a car. And behind the other two would be goats. And so the way it would play, maybe we can just do a little demonstration here. Uh, No pressure. But let's just say, Toby, you're the contestant. And you can pick door one, door two, or door three. Which one do you pick? Three. All right. So you pick door three. And so it would be fair to say that each door, you probably have a one-third chance of being correct. So then me, as Monty Hall, would then open one of the other two doors. I know where the car is, so I open the door that has the goat. So let's say I open door number one, and I give you the option. Do you stay with door number three, or do you change to door number two? Now, have your odds changed? No. 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 Yes.
1: Oh, yes, because I now know one of the doors has a goat. I you, know there is a goat behind. I know which door has a goat.
2: You do. And this is the part, though, that's interesting, is that because you might think now it's between two doors, right? It's between the door that you originally picked and one other door. So a lot of people would think then that it's 50-50 odds. But it's not, apparently. And that's the Monty Hall problem. That they, it's Mathematically, it's been determined over and over again that, in fact your best strategy is to choose the new door because it's been proven that the door that you haven't picked uh, has a two-thirds chance of having the car, whereas the door that you originally picked still has a one-third chance. And... It's like a paradox. It's hard to uh, like believe, but, and I'll put a link to a YouTube video that explains it much better than I do, but it all has to do with the host knowing what's behind the other two doors. And it's hard to see with just three doors, but but the example they use is, let's say there were 100 doors, and you are to pick one. So pick one out of 100. 18. Okay, so then what I will do as Monty Hall is I open 98 doors, leaving just one, and the door that you've picked. So you can see now the chances are you know the car is either behind your initial door or the door. So what were the chances that you picked the right door at the first go? Slim. And so so anyway, I just thought, I mean, not that uh, Lilith was uh, dealing with which doors to open. She was much more into like the personalities and stuff. But I always thought that Monty Hall problem is kind of a mind-bender. And again, I will put a link up that probably explains it a little more thoroughly than that. But the Monty Hall problem about opening doors and goats. I always wondered, if you open the door with a goat, do you get to actually keep the goat?
1: I would hope so. Yeah.
0: It's like Bart Simpson, where's my elephant? (laughs) 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 Or that recent documentary on Netflix, Pepsi, where's my jet? I don't know that one. (laughs) Oh, Pepsi had a contest where if you collected a certain number of bottle caps, you could win prizes, and the top prize was a Harrier jet or an amount of money. And Pepsi assumed anyone who won that prize would want the money. One person collected all the bottle caps or whatever it was, and they wanted the jet. And it became a big thing. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, sometimes you don't know what people will choose. Maybe they do want the goat.
1: (laughs) So I am reading the new George Saunders short story collection, Liberation Day. And Saunders is, of course, really great with language. And he uses all sorts of words that jump out at me. But one that particularly jumped out was the word petard which is one of those words that just sounds funny, but I don't think I was ever sure what it actually meant. So petard is a small bomb made of metal or a wooden box filled with powder used to blast down a door or to make a hole in a wall. But the word is almost always encountered these days in variations of the phrase hoist with one's own petard, which means that you were victimized or hurt by your own scheme. You know, the bomb maker is hoisted, you know, blown off the ground by his own bomb. And like many of our contemporary sayings, it came from Shakespeare. Um, It comes from Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 4. And I'm going to read the part it comes from. This is where Hamlet is talking to his mother about being ordered to travel to England with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And he says, There's letters sealed in my two schoolfellows whom I trust as I will adders fanged. They bear the mandate they must sweep my way and marshal me to knavery. Let it work, for tis the sport to have the engineer hoist with his own petard, and it shall go hard... But I will delve one yard below their minds and blow them at the moon. Oh, tis most sweet when in one line two crafts directly meet. Also, what I read in England at this time, the French word petard, I guess is the pronunciation, um, was in common use and meant gunshot or farting. Um, <laughs> so it's likely that hoist with his own petard has a double meaning and was meant to be a bit of a joke. <laughs> yeah. Petard.
0: That's a good one. <laughs> My nerd word for this month is condole. Merriam-Webster defines it as to express sympathetic sorrow. It is derived from the Latin word condoliri, uh, from Latin com, meaning with and deliri, to feel pain. First known use was 1586, and it is from condole that we developed the word condolences. I have always struggled with what to say when someone suffers the loss of a loved one. Words always seem completely inadequate, but it also feels like you want to or have to say something. And that's what I like about condole and condolences. Their entire purpose is to say this specific thing, that the speaker is sorrowful about the loss that has been suffered and wants to let the person who has suffered that loss know so they won't be alone in their grief. These are words we use when we can't find any other words, when we need to say something that is appropriate, solemn, and kind. Condole. And that is all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss the classic novel Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. Ancient, beautiful Manderley. Between the Rose Garden and the sea is the county's showpiece. Rebecca made it so. Even a year after her death, Rebecca's influence still rules there. How can Maxime de Winter's shy new bride ever fill her place or escape her vital shadow? A shadow that grows longer and darker as the brief summer fades, until, in a moment of climatic revelations, it threatens to eclipse Manderley and its inhabitants completely. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all of our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us too. And until next time, make sure you find time, time to, to read. Oh,
1: should listen to, um, there's a podcast called If Books Could Kill, Okay, and they did an episode on outliers. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, when you read a Malcolm Gladwell book, you should read the four or five response books <laughs> that are yeah. written
2: to criticize Yeah, he's been really
1: <laughs> taken down in the last couple of years.
2: Really? Yeah. You guys reign silent. <laughs> All right. It doesn't mean it's not
0: worth reading. Right. It's just, you got to keep in mind that his ideas have been challenged uh, a number of times and you have to... You know, the grain of salt is very important.
2: Well, that will uh, make for, a, like, a fun discussion a year from now when, I, when we revisit. I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh.
1: And you should read the Becky Chambers' Monk and Robot series. They're so lovely.
0: It sounds good. I kind of want to do more of the the Spaceborne universe first. These uh, are,
1: like, very small. Like, yeah. they're, they're novellas. You could finish okay. one in a couple days. Yeah. They're so soothing.
0: I honestly think I'm probably going to end up reading all of hers at some point. It's just, she's so good. She's really, yeah. Yeah, I am so impressed with every part of it. Like the prose, the characterization, the universe building. She's got everything. (laughs) It's amazing.